Type on a keyboard. Awesome. You can secure things. A music keyboard? <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special <laughs> Down Our Front podcast. We're going to go ahead and get started. So, on the Down Our Front podcast, it is our goal, it is our mission to always uh, bring you the best reviews in movies and TV shows. And when we talk about what we love and what we hate about those things, uh, we always talk about different particulars, whether it's the directing or the music or acting that actually moved us while seeing these uh, films. And we know, and we understand here at the Downfront Podcast that it takes a team to make these movies happen. And there's many different moving parts for all these films to actually become reality. And we appreciate all of them. And we wanted to take some time right now to actually talk to someone who is one of those pieces that makes a film or TV show happen. And so tonight we're going to do a little bit of an interview with a very special guest. But before we do that, did want to say my fellow compatriot, Mike uh, Blewett, is here with me as well. Say hi, Mike. Hey, what's going on, guys? Awesome. So tonight, joining us, uh, Matt Gray is a British-Canadian acting coach who taught at Lamba in the United Kingdom, Carnegie Mellon, and Yale, whose former students include Richard Armitage from Netflix's Castlevania series, David Oyelowo from Selma, and who has worked on FX's Fargo Season 2, Fox's The Bastard Executioner, Sci-Fi's Dune, and Marvel's Legion TV series. Matt Gray, thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much, guys. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So our first question for you tonight will be our question we always ask each other every podcast we have. What are you drinking, and what have you been watching recently? So I am drinking uh, red wine, and uh, I tend to go for Pinot Noir uh, in uh, solidarity with uh, Northern California. My wife and I actually got married uh, about five miles west of where the fires have been hitting this week so i'm drinking all the all the california pinot that i can in solidarity um and what have i been watching recently i saw blade runner 2049 uh in 2d imax and uh and freaking loved it i freaking loved it um Mainly because, and, and if I get too uh, pretentious and pedantic, I'm sorry, it's just who I am, but um, what I got from it, the thing I thought was so awesome about it is they, they take this, they become very interested in this particular movie with holograms and how holograms are part of the, the landscape. And why I like that is because, um, call me crazy, I think that's the central metaphor 
for the entire process. So, like, imagine 30 years later, you want to do a sequel to one of the most influential science fiction movies in the world, right? And, oh, by the way, your central lead, Harrison Ford, is still alive. He just looks like an angry old man now. He gets his legs broken on Star Wars films, right? Ridley Scott, who can't be copied as a director. So what do you have? So in that scene in Blade Runner where you have a hologram and a real person superimposing opposite each other, that's the whole act, that's the whole act of making a sequel to Blade Runner. So like you literally have real Ridley Scott from the original superimposed with uh, Denis Villeneuve, a brilliant director with his own thoughts, but he's never ever able to be fully realized because he's always going to be a hologram in relationship to the original movie. You've got Ryan Gosling, but he's never going to be the real thing in relationship to the real Harrison Ford. So I, Denny Villeneuve is a smart guy, makes smart movies. I think that kind of attention to looking at the holograms was Denny Villeneuve's way of going, doing a sequel to one of the most influential movies is ridiculous anyway, but it is even more ridiculous in this particular world. And that central kind of um, motif of hologram and how it's going to impact upon us, I think is very personal I can't imagine what it was would be like to be that director on that movie, with uh, you know Ridley Scott looking over your shoulder the whole time. But I, I think the movie is so courageous, it's so bold. I don't think it pulls any kind of punches. I, and I will fight anyone who says it's too long because I could have stayed in that movie theater for another hour. I, I, I thought it was really special. It's funny you mention yeah. that because two things: uh, Harrison Ford approved of the script. Which, mm-hmm. knowing Harrison Ford's involvement with the previous Blade Runner, the fact that he at all wanted to talk about Blade Runner 2 was something special. And the second thing is that I don't know what is real anymore. Uh, spoiler alert for our podcast coming up, because uh, we're going to talk about Blade Runner in, you know, in the near future. Um, the, the amount of CGI that we've seen between, uh, you know, like the Marvel movies and who was the other big one that like de-aged someone perfectly? Oh, so, well, in Star Wars having Tarkin. Yeah, Rogue One. Oh, yeah, Rogue, Rogue One. One. Where, where like, yeah, yeah, it looked a little bit unnatural, but it's getting to the, to the point where it looks spot on. Like it definitely still, there, you can kind of tell, but even when they were doing like half these characters, uh... Especially that hologram scene. Like, there's no other way to do that but CGI. And that looked unbelievable. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I would just add on to that. Like, a lot of people take for granted, like, what it takes to act like a robot, I would say. That it is probably one of the toughest things to do. And I found those scenes with the um, with the uh, post-traumatic uh, baseline test that... Ryan Gosling went through as some of the most like not only like calming and mesmerizing scenes, but I was like, this guy knows his stuff really well, <laughs> and because it is easy to mess up that type of flat inflection he has to go with. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And I think Gosling catches a lot of flack, and he doesn't deserve it. I mean, he's he's fantastic in this. And exactly the right choice. In the same way, like I haven't been moved by a sci-fi movie like this since uh, Arrival. Oh, look who directed that. (laughs) And and before that, um, uh, Under the Skin with Scarlett Johansson. And I think Scarlett Johansson's casting in that movie is very similar to casting Ryan Gosling in this. Mm. Like it's a very 
they consciously are playing on the image that Ryan Gosling has already in our popular culture to cast him as the kind of person who he is. I don't want to spoil nothing, but the kind of person that he is in 2049, and we bring our own baggage to being able to view him that way. Yeah, absolutely. You're quite right. So what we have, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to ask you a few questions just to get to know more about what does an acting coach do, but who is Matt Gray as well? We'll know a little bit more about you. So I'd like to see if you would uh, start off. I think uh, Mike has a question about your education, about uh, how did you get into this role as an acting coach? Yeah, I had a couple things on that. Um, First of all, like, are you formally educated um, if not, what resources are available to break into like this sort of coaching or this industry? Um, and kind of like, where would you start with that? Like, did you, did you start in, I know you didn't start as an acting coach, you know, did you start getting coffee for the acting coach and then eventually, you know, go, Hey, you should smile during the scene. And then they're like, we like that. So, cause I know I've, I'm going to try and draw parallels to this. I've, I've worked a little bit in the music industry. Uh, both as like, you know, an intern and then an assistant and then as like a, you know, a lead engineer. And it's, you oftentimes have to just be the right person in the right job that says the right thing, um, regardless of your education. So can you give us a little background? Sure. I mean, I, I started wanting to be an actor, really. So I, my first education experience was I took what's called a bachelor. I mean, for actors, there's sort of, uh, one major route in a university setting, and that's a Bachelor of Fine Arts, which sounds much more pretentious than it really is, in acting. And there's a number of schools that are have what are called usually accredited programs. Sometimes they call them conservatory programs. And all that means is that they've managed to um, have some sort of negotiation with the provost of the university to stop their students from taking too many electives. And that may sound, that may sound like cruel and unusual, but it's basically anytime you're training to be an actor or a director or anything like that, you're normally doing a lot of theater, and what theater does is take your time. So I did a uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts program. We did a year of university, um, sort of general studies, looking at things, auditioned for the Fine Arts program. They choose 14 actors at the school I went to uh, out of probably about 1,500 people who audition, and then those 14 go through a three-year intensive program. Um, So training voice, training movement, training acting, uh, training combat, and all sorts of other sort of bits and pieces. You do lots of plays during that. Uh, I loved it, but something really weird happened in the second year of my three years of that program. Uh, I realized I didn't want to be an actor anymore, and I didn't know what that meant, but I realized that directing was probably what I wanted to try, Um, I was already doing sound design. It was how I paid my way through uh, my undergrad was by uh, being um, a studio tech for a number of recording studios in Vancouver, um, which is where I went to undergrad. So I was just really lucky. I was in Vancouver in the 90s when grunge was exploding and Bob Rock was the producer uh, in demand and he was in Vancouver. So it meant that every band worth their salt in North America and sometimes Europe too was flocking to Vancouver to try and be a part of that scene and get recorded and either have Bob Rock touch it or some of Bob Rock's engineers touch it. 
And I was a low, low, low peon, but I would basically go to college, do my, do my acting classes, do a show most nights, then finish around 11, go to Red Robin and have a burger, and then go to the recording studio and work in the recording studio until 6 in the morning, sleep on the floor of the recording studio, and take my philosophy class at 9.30 in the morning. That was sort of my undergrad experience. I decided I wanted to go do directing as my postgrad, um, and heard that there were I was really was interested in going to the UK because it was a different experience than North America. Off I went to to London because I would very fortunately got accepted to go to Lambda. They take two directing students, um, and when I was there, I realized that um, what I was doing was I was like a former actor learning to be a director. Um, in the British system. And the British system is very different than America. America is all very concerned with, well, how do you feel and what's your intention and, you know, where's the guts and how do you bleed and you got to be the character. And I'm not saying any of that is bad because that was my tradition. That's what I was steeped in. But I get to the UK and everyone's like, well, you know, it's all acting really. It's pretend. So, you know, sort of learn your lines and don't bump into the furniture and try not to screw it up and uh, meet you in the pub afterwards for a drink. And I couldn't believe how different that was, <laughs> that there was just like this attention to craft rather than attention to feeling. And and I was so lucky. So by the time I finished my, um, my directing postgrad, uh, I was actually asked to stay on because the British school that I was at, Lambda, didn't really have a lot of sort of American influence for lack of a better phrase and and i was still absorbing the british influence so i stayed and taught and directed at lambda as an adjunct professor or an adjunct teacher um and 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 basically took it as like extended grad school that i was sort of learning more about how the british system works to really comprehensively train an actor while that was happening i got headhunted by Carnegie Mellon University. They were looking for a new professor. Uh, the last thing I thought I ever was going to do was go into higher education. I thought I was going to be either a director or an actor or an actor director or an actor sound designer director. And then all of a sudden, this higher education thing, I uh, full disclosure, Carnegie Mellon, I had no idea what those words meant. And then um, it was in Pittsburgh and all I thought about Pittsburgh. Ironically, my image of Pittsburgh was the opening shot of the original Blade Runner movie. Like, I, I kind of thought, like, like fire, fire coming fire. out of... Yeah, exactly, like, <laughs> chimneys and stuff like that. Um, I, I went to Carnegie Mellon and realized that there were, you know, it was a, a remarkable tradition. It was a very well-respected higher education institution. Um, and I thought I could make this work. So I closed down my life in London, and off I went to Pittsburgh. Um and when I was there, that I think is where the acting coach started. Because when I got to Pittsburgh, I was I was part director and part actor. Um, Carnegie Mellon, being so well respected, it's it's always in the top five or top ten like uh, actor training institutions in the in the country. Um, so the the students that get to audition for them are exceptional, really good, and I was getting to work with them. Um, but they also have a very good relationship with their alumni. So we would have alumni would come back either to do a show or they were working on a movie in town and they would talk to the students. And I was really sort of watching this interesting interplay because obviously I had been 
talk, treated or taught as an actor. I wanted to teach actors. Um, and I was in theoretically one of the best schools in the world to teach actors. But I couldn't understand why even a school like Carnegie Mellon was taking in 26 actors every year. But maybe two of them were really making a name for themselves. Ten of them maybe could make a living. And I just thought that was a really terrible ratio. So I sort of lost my faith in what that was more and more and more. And that's when I started to um, try and customize the kind of uh, training that I wanted to offer the uh, actors I was working with. Um, so I left Carnegie Mellon, uh, my wife and I came out to Boston, and I originally started at Northeastern University, and what attracted me there was they do this thing called the co-op plan. The great thing about co-op is that you can't graduate any degree without actually working in the field that you're in, and I was like, well, this is what I've always been wanting, a mix of, like, student teaching and also real-world experience. It's got to be great. But yeah, then, Northeastern's, uh, like, world-renowned for their co-op opportunities that they have there as well exactly but the co-op opportunities are all wrapped up in their engineering school uh-huh. and, and in their law school and what i what i found and i'm sure things are different now but what i found when i was there is that there just really wasn't the commitment to try and place students in my field actually in the industry so at that point i started to be effectively become more freelance i um I reached out and got um, asked to do some work at NYU, um, asked to do some work at Yale, and that's when my private coaching started. So uh, sort of is a long way of saying to you, Mike, no, luckily I've never had to fetch coffee for an acting coach. <laughs> but it, what's interesting about an acting coach is that it, they're very common, but they're things that tend not to happen. When I say, oh, yeah, I'm, I have private students and I coach them, they think what I do is to teach people accents or to teach people how to sing or something like that because I think that they comprehend that as the craft that the actor would need. But actually what I do is I work with actors on how on earth they're going to approach the character that they've been cast to play in the show that they're doing. I think that's – I mean speak – so two things. Um, speaking from like more of a producer side of uh, – in the audio world, most of, most of it isn't like get six inches from the microphone and then say these words and then please speak them clearly, but also be melodic about it. It's mostly like, I really, the reason I got trusted, the reason I moved up through, you know, through the audio circle was like, I was fun to be with and I could relax a room, uh, to get to a point where it didn't feel like it was a job to make a record. So I can definitely speak to that where I, I think, it, you know, the, the best people, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, making a living as an audio engineer, obviously like I'm, uh, there's, there's definite shortcomings in my game. Um, but the best people in any of these fields, it's less about the technical side of things and more about, can I bridge a connection to create some sort of artwork? Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, I can definitely, coming from a different side of things, and obviously you have the studio background, so you can definitely speak to that as well, where, like, yeah, it's, it's can you help someone become that art rather than, like, well, I, you have to say this with this emphasis. Um, the second thing I, I'd have to say is um, the, 
you spoke about 10 of 26, you know, making a living and two of them becoming names. Would you say that's mostly, and I guess speak to maybe less your teaching experience, but more the industry wide. Do you think that's more to do with a competitive uh, industry um, with competing against people with no formal talent, but maybe some connections in the environment? Or is that like literally the school system is churning out people, but has no idea how to actually market those people into jobs? I, I, I think it's a, a, a third thing. I think the biggest problem that I found with why higher ed isn't, isn't getting more of their students to work is because the model that higher ed is using is a 1960s and 1970s model of what the industry was, which was the 1960s and the 1970s were a time when there were regional theaters everywhere. And so therefore, here's how it worked. You went to school, you learned the basics. Then you went to a regional theater, which cast you in 85 different things over two years. So you had to really know your lines, and you had to learn how to wear a wig, and you had to learn not to bump into furniture. And then if you got good at that, maybe someone saw you do something so you could audition for a commercial. And if you did a commercial, you didn't like it, but you did it for the money to pay to keep doing theater. And then maybe you got to get an extra or a smaller role in a more popular theater. And then maybe if you were really lucky, you got a guest role in a TV show. And then if you were really, really lucky, maybe you got to. So the pyramid went that way. Hmm. That pyramid inverted 15 years ago. And, and higher ed still hasn't noticed it. The, the pyramid now is upside down. What you want to do is as soon as a student has got the basics, you need to get them in front of a camera immediately because the camera is where they have the chance of making the money, making the most impact, right? Mm. So you want to get a new, fresh face in front of television with new, fresh talent because if they're there, then they can move to movies. And once they've made their name there, then they can go to the theater where someone will actually pay to go and see them. But the truth is, people don't go to the theater unless they have a name that they want to pay to go and see. Because why the fuck would I want to go and see a play? I mean, like, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Most people yeah. think that way now. So that is the problem. And so the conundrum in American universities that, that I saw, and again, I've been out for a while, so I'm hoping it's all different now. But what I saw was an American university system that was so dead set about holding on to their old model of what they thought the good days were rather than how much the industry has changed. And the tragedy with that is that the industry changes faster every two years than it has done in the last 15 years. So by the time students are, are able to get the kind of training that they need to fit the current industry, truthfully, there will be no more need for that training. Because I, I do think, like, uh, one of the things I remember doing um, maybe a year into my time at Northeastern is I actually built a curriculum um, where if you spent $12,000, you could buy your way in at the top level of 15, no, 12 major uh, Kickstarter film TV projects, including, by the way, the Veronica Mars movie and the Zach Braff self-financed movie. But if you buy it at the top level, one of the things they offer you is a role in the movie, a small role in the movie and an IMDb credit. 
Hmm. So if you spent $16,000 buying yourself into 12 top-level Kickstarter movies, you would actually end up with more on IMBD credits. You would learn more about the physics of actually really making a movie, and you'd actually probably make back your money through work in less than two years, unlike most American university programs, which are closer to $180,000 to $250,000, which hmm. is student loan debt. What do you think? So, what do you think right. about the, the right. internet? But um, what you do mention something very interesting hmm. about nowadays. I mean, technology's changed the game for pretty much any vertical out there. And I know I spent one summer looking at like casting call websites, and I found them to be some of the worst designed websites ever. They're not really engaging. They hide actually what you're actually looking for if you're interested. So you got to kind of learn to get around the BS that's on those websites. Uh-huh. Whereas you see on the other side, some kid in high school is getting a webcam and hosting a show on YouTube five years later, they're going into a movie because they've gone ahead and put in the grunt work and shown they have the skills and talents right then and there well, and have the millions of views to show it. That's uh-huh. that's that's what I was going to say. That was perfectly encapsulated my question where like, these kids with YouTube that have basically a $200 camera, $500 GoPro, you know, if you really splurge. Um, and then they show off their skills, at least the good ones, of being an editor, a director, a producer, a writer. It's like literally like all-in-one training. And also it's immediate that if your channel starts to do well, it it's like, you know, it's artistic capitalism where people flock to what is talent. And then from there... Like, do you, when you're in school, do you ever tell people, like, hey, just get in front of a camera, vlog, because if anything, it's it's a visual resume. You know, you can point and say, like, hey. Absolutely, man. And look, you're, you're speaking my language. 2006, 7, 8 was the beginning of the real maker movement. And what you're describing is the reason your method is more effective is because that philosophy is make it and keep making it and iterate it, which I talked to you earlier about why, what I learned when I was in the UK. That's a craft-based training. It's the same thing as the UK. We're like, you get on stage, you act, you get better, you fall over every so often, you learn from falling over, but you get good at it that way. And what American universities were doing was a different, wasn't a maker model, it was a gatekeeper model, which is that you've got to pay your dues by telling the teacher what they want to hear, and then eventually the teacher will give your name to somebody else, and then maybe a gatekeeper might give you a job. But the industry had given up on that crap literally tens of years earlier than it. The ones who were changing the industry were the ones who were making things. So what I used to say is, if you want to get better, A, get in front of a camera, B, do it as often as you can, and C, make things that you are passionate about because no gatekeeper you can't wait for the gatekeeper to ask you or cast you in something because it's never going to happen you spend your whole life waiting for that to happen yeah that's definitely well put um what i will say (laughs) in addition to this is like so like this is an interesting like so then how do you become an acting coach because for me how it happened was it was a mixture of me Really, when I was in higher ed, I, I mean, unapologetically raging against the system that I was theoretically a part of, which, is, as I found out the hard way, is a terrible strategy for longevity in higher education. 
right? So like I was there going, but this isn't working, but this isn't working, but this isn't working, right? But when you say that, what's interesting is there are enough people in the industry who are kind of thirsty to hear that coming out of higher education. So like I remember having an amazing like half hour one-on-one with Patrick Wilson who came because he's an alum of Carnegie Mellon and he came to do like a guest workshop and he had heard me talk to uh, make a couple of comments in one of my acting classes and he pulled me over by the by the elevators and, and half an hour later he was like still shaking and what he was basically saying is how do I tell these kids how much has changed? Because I've seen it. I've been on set. I, and this is a guy who, you know, has made Watchmen. This is a guy who made The Conjuring. This is a really good actor. But, and, and respects what he learned when he was at Carnegie Mellon, but just sees completely the wrong form of training. I then had exactly the same conversation with Josh Gad and Jake Gyllenhaal in the same exact hallway a month later when they were in town as well, because Josh Gad's a, a CMU grad. So these things were starting to happen. Um, and then I, I found myself in, at, at NYU helping out doing some teaching there. And the amazing thing about the school of, uh, like NYU is, unlike a place like Carnegie Mellon, two floors underneath where I was teaching, Spike Lee had an office and had a line of students waiting to talk to him. And he met every single one of them. And I was like, oh, right, that's how it needs to work, which is that someone like Spike Lee, who has actually made movies, has been in the industry, is telling these students exactly what it's like from the inside. So how I got into acting coaching was me going, all right, I have been on set. I've been in these situations and I've been in an acting class. I've been on both sides. So now I need to connect those dots and help my clients fight number one the head game which i think is a large part of when you're working on film because you know there's literally millions of dollars hanging off you and and that's really overwhelming (laughs) so your head game's got to be strong but it's also just about making sure that the choices you're making are tuned correctly for the medium that you're putting them on which is camera so that that's got to be a really unique blend of actual practical experience with the medium But also, like if I've got a client, I'm not just giving them tips and tricks because that's not going to be filled with anything. My clients are smart people whose brains need to know why they're making their choices. So you've got to feed both sides, like the part of them that wants to think about it and the part of them that wants to do it. And that balance is unique for every individual student, but it can only work if you have a little bit of experience actually on set doing it and also being in a classroom with the idealism of like, oh, we're all going to be better actors by doing the method. And it's going to be some sort of balance in there. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And one question of curiosity I have before we uh, go on to our next question is, was Wes Craven still teaching there when you were there? He was. I mean, I never got a chance to meet him. But I mean, so Wes Craven was there. Alec Baldwin was there. Um, Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean, like these were, and what's great is every single one of them we're super generous, and I think that generosity is something that rarely translates outside of the school environment. But the generosity that I always saw was so. So, for example, like I, I, not to name drop, but like to give you an example, 
So when Josh Gad and, and Jake Gyllenhaal, the, first of all, they didn't make an arrangement with the university to turn up. They just turned up, right? I literally yeah. opened up the door. I was going into class. I looked down the hallway and saw two of the most famous people in the world, right? And they were around. We jokingly had a, sort of a, an interaction. They offered to come into the class. Jake Gyllenhaal played theater games with us for 20 minutes. He then helped answer questions for the students. Like, he answered questions of second-year students. They weren't even going to graduate for two years. He would have stayed for the entire day if, if there weren't, like, a, a, day, a, a, a call for him to go shooting later. He had no need to do that. He's Jake freaking Gyllenhaal. He's Donnie Darko. He could have stayed at home, you know? <laughs> but these actors so often wanted to impart their experience because they knew that the things that they learned in the first three years of their career were things that they wish they had learned when they were in school and they didn't need to learn the hard way. And they wanted these students to learn the easy way. I find that artists tend to be some of the most like caring to like pass the craft along people you will ever meet. Like you walk into a room and every guitar player I've ever talked to you has been, you, you ask like, how'd you play that riff? And they're like, oh dude, let me just, let me just it's just so sick, like you do this part, and, uh, and I think as an artist, it's the ultimate job security to be you, because uh -huh. that's the point, like you don't wanna be Josh Gad, or you don't wanna be Jake Gyllenhaal, you wanna be like Matt Gray when you're on stage, and, and it's really drawing that out, like you can, you can make the same moves they do and not get hired because you're not them. But if you make the moves that you want to do, that's the, the key aspect. And I really love that about the artistic community because again, you, you know that no one can replicate you. So why not share what made you tick? Which exactly. is very, it's and, and, and refreshing. one thing that I love that Jake Gyllenhaal and Josh Gad were both very adamant about using your language Josh Gad doesn't want you to be Josh Gad, and Jake Gyllenhaal has no interest in you wanting to be Jake Gyllenhaal. Like, that, that's not the path. And Patrick Wilson's the same way, and, and Alec Baldwin was the same way, and Spike Lee's the same way. It's like, don't be me. I'm telling you what I learned so you can go and be you. So right. you don't have to. I mean, right. one of my favorite acting teachers of all time, Stella Adler, used to always say, um, look, I say these things not because... I think I'm faultless, but because I made these mistakes a hundred times myself and I want to save you the effort of making them yourself. And I'm like, that, that's, that's the kind of artistic way. It was like, in order for you to find your voice, I'm going to tell you how I screwed up mine so you don't have to screw yours up in the same way. Yeah. It's, it's refreshing cool. to hear. I, I, I find you don't get that in a lot of other industries, that sort of openness and like, you know, yep. cross company lines. So. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's cool. That's an interesting thing about uh, acting. I mean, it's kind of like a constant gray ebb and flow of everything for how you actually approach that craft. But you mentioned a lot of really cool actors. I wanted to hear from you a little bit. Um, who would you say would be your, who would you be most excited to work with as an actor or actress to help them in? A certain role that current or you would actually see them play in or if you wanted to just 
take it another way. Who's your favorite actor or actress of all time? Oh, I'll try and do both. I mean, um, the, I mean, my probably my favorite actor who's working right now is Mark Rylance. I mean, I think that the man is, he's absolutely hypnotic to watch. If you're in a room with him, there, there are very, very few places in the world you're going to get a better experience than being in a room with Mark Rylance acting. Um, in terms of people I'd love to work with, I would love to work with someone like um, Andy Serkis, who I've seen live, I think is a brilliant motion capture artist, I think is an absolute leader in that field. And um, I just would love the opportunity to be in the room with him. Um, I, I, I think there are actors like... Um, yeah, what he's done on the Apes movies has been phenomenal, I think. I, I completely agree. I mean, an actor like uh, Marshall Ali, who, I mean, I mean, I think Moonlight was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. I think he's amazing. Uh, he's remarkable in Luke Cage as well. I just think there is something about that guy as an actor which is so he's, freaking interesting. He's captivating. Um, he really is. Every time, I, I, I haven't seen Moonlight yet, but I, I watched all of Luke Cage that one weekend. And every single second he was on screen, you just felt he was bigger than life. Yeah, when they introduced him as Remy in House of Cards, I was like, I want to see more of this guy's story rather yeah. than the uh, Underwoods. I just, I, so I, I love him. But then, you know, Michael McKean's work in Better Call Saul just gets crazier and crazier in terms of its beauty more and more every year. Um, Rachel McAdams can absolutely do anything and I, I would probably run to go and see it. I mean, I, I think um, Octavia Spencer is just one of those actresses who I I think can do so much more than she's ever asked to do. I mean, Octavia Spencer to me is right now where um, Morgan Freeman was in about 1987, where like everyone knows she's amazing, but no one's given her the role yet to completely bust out and be spectacular. Hmm. Um, and, and then I'll also go and say Giancarlo Esposito. So here's an actor who I remember seeing a movie that a tiny independent film he made where he played this drug dealer. He actually got nominated for an Oscar for it. And um, Samuel L. Jackson, of all people, played the father. I mean, it, uh, it was a crazy experience. However, I watched Giancarlo Esposito make that movie. And then, of course, he's been Gus Spring on Breaking Bad since then. There's a man who just exudes, like, nothing that you can pin down. And I think that's exciting in an actor. When you're watching someone and you're like, what the hell are they going to do next? I have no idea. And I don't mean, like, in the Nicolas Cage scary way. <laughs> Which is like, or the Nicolas Cage funny, scary way. I mean, it in a way where like you're like, this person's really wrestling with something interesting that they're doing. Yeah, one actor that does that really for me is uh, Andre Brower. Yeah, I, I grew up uh, loving him on Homicide: Life on the Street, and now seeing him on um, what's it called, uh, Rescue Nine One One or yeah. Brooklyn Nine One One? Brooklyn Nine One One. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a total different take on the character but he still has 
the same passion and effort to that character so, as well. Quick question from an outsider coming in. Uh, when you when you talk about the unexpected, can you give us a breakdown of what uh, that means versus actor working with a script that's written by someone that is under the direction of someone else? Like, is that a 33-33-33 or is that... And it doesn't depend on the project. Like, some projects are mostly improvised, whereas some projects are, like, highly scripted and you have to do exactly what they say. So, I mean, uh, I always defer to the great film critic from Chicago, Michael Phillips' quote, which says, you know, uh, when when thinking about anything committed to film, uh, the last person, a lot of things have got to go wrong before you can blame the actor. Um, so I don't think it's even close to 33. I think most of what you're dealing with, anything that happens on screen, you're probably looking at 80% to 85 to 90% has all been decided by other people before the actor is even able to take responsibility for things. So when I talk about unpredictable, what I mean is not are they going to say what's been scripted, but are they going to make a choice as an actor where you think they're going to go one direction, you think you've figured them out, but they actually try something very, very, very different. Hmm. So an example is, you know, human beings are wonderfully unpredictable, especially when we're, but we're emotional, but our emotions are utterly unpredictable. So we tend to think, oh, well, when you get the script and the script says you go to a funeral, then that means that's your crying scene. Truth is, I've been to funerals where I've heard people, like, giggle. I've been to funerals where people just shut down entirely and nothing emotionally happens at all. I've been to funerals where people just gossip. They don't actually engage emotionally with anything. So you've been to an Italian funeral on that last one. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there you go. So, so like, that, that's what I mean by unpredictable. It's not about, it's about the actor finding a way of do, making a choice that is not exactly the same choice that the director and the writer and the designers have made. I mean, so for example, like if you are doing a superhero movie and you've found that you're, you know, you've got a tight muscular suit and they are going to light you in a, you know, a dramatic justice filled way. And, you know, the musician or the, the, the composer has composed a theme that is lofty for you in the background. If you just act that which they've already chosen all you're doing is more of the same choices the actor who is interesting is the actor who decides to throw something away not be heroic find a counterpoint to use musical terms to find a counterpoint to all those choices being made by other people because truthfully film is probably there's so many i mean you you probably had to sit through the credits at the end of a movie they're epic the number of people on that screen are unbelievable. They've all made choices. And the actor has as well. But we think, oh, well, because the actor is famous, they're more important. Not necessarily at all. Not necessarily. Like, there's no need, There's no reason why Christian Bale had more to say defining who Batman was than 30 graphic design artists who were working on the special effects. You know? It's really about... Like, we, we talk a lot in the tech world about, like, that the best choice wins. Well, that's definitely true when you're working in movies because if you have any other methodology, a movie would never get made. 
There's just too many freaking people. The only option is best idea wins. Otherwise, you just get eaten by the movie. Hmm. You know, this, it just becomes overwhelming. So I think what actors... There's a thing a misnomer that people think that there's a lot of improv that happens, especially with comedies, but there's very few people out there who do that well. I mean, the Duplass brothers do it very well, but they're really only them. There's a couple other people who do it. If you think about a, a show like Parks and Recreation, Parks and Rec is heavily scripted. The Parks and Rec only does a single take, which is the improv take, and it's after they've done coverage from the meticulously written script. One of my favorite stories from the Cohn brothers is um, a one, a, while making Fargo, the actor was uh, had a line that says, uh, when he was asked by Steve Buscemi's character where he wants to go for breakfast, on the script uh, it read, pancakes, plural, house. And the actor was like, oh, well, that's grammatically incorrect. So when the camera's rolling, Steve Buscemi asks where you want to go for breakfast, and he says, pancake, the pancake house. And the Coen brothers shout cut from across the camera and you hear this voice that is very intent that says, read exactly what's in the script or we'll find someone else. Let's do this again. <laughs> yeah. These are people who don't make mistakes because when you're making a movie like Fargo, the Coen brothers have lived with that script for a year and a half before they got to that moment where they're shooting it. Hmm. And that's normally the moment the actor turns up going, oh, I had this idea that maybe uh, we'll do it all in fruit or maybe we'll do it all in a wig. You know, like that, that just does, there's just not the space for that to happen. So the actor's canvas in a movie or, an, or a TV show is actually very, very, very narrow, you know, on the visual side of things. But on the internal side of things, if an actor feels like they have no decision or freedom, you're, you're entering into fronts Kafka kind of territory. So they, 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 it's about kind of. Mark Marin says, you know, the whole business is about how much delusion you're comfortable with living with. Because <laughs> too much delusion, and you go down the route of Lindsay Lohan and Nick Cage. Too little delusion, and you end up being this boring, cold, uninteresting, or just pissed off, cynical actor. So you've got to find this balance of delusioning yourself enough to believe that what you're doing is important, but being aware enough to realize that you, if you get, you can't get too pretentious and think that you're driving anything. Hmm. Yeah. And sometimes we get like Tom Cruise who can say like, Oh, you want a single bubble to come out of my nostril <laughs> underwater? I'll yeah. make that happen. And he breaks whatever blood vessels you need to, to make that happen. <laughs> right. And then he does break the blood vessels and then the insurers get angry. Like they did on the latest mission impossible. And everyone <laughs> goes on a hiatus for three months. <laughs> All right. So one more goodie. What would you change about the film industry to make it better for people that are going into it or people that just enjoy it? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, I would, I would, uh, require, everybody to undergo um, conflict resolution. Uh, I guess if I could change anything with the industry, it would be um, if, if we could smash large super companies owning all the production companies, the idea that like this company is a byproduct of Viacom, this company is a byproduct of GE, this company is a byproduct of Sony, I think there would just be more diversity in the kind of ways that 
funding could reach projects. And if you could change the way funding reached projects, the number of different kinds of projects would be there. Um, I'm sort of saddened that the independent film world has sort of dried up. I mean, the idea that an indie film now stars, I don't know, Jane Fonda is insane to me because she's Jane yeah. Fonda. Um, that there isn't an independent film industry, um, except that that's all now moved to YouTube and Vimeo. Wasn't, you know that, I mean? wasn't like Mother an independent film or something? Like, or something huge came out recently that was like, I guess that was Aronofsky, so that's not, but. Uh, but yeah, it is Aronofsky's. I mean, it's, it was a twenty-four, wasn't it? Which is considered an indie. Production yeah, company. we're like, but dude, you have Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence, and like, how is this? It felt like an art project rather than. And like it's run by the daughter of Michael Dell, the production company. So. Yeah. I mean, it, it, look, I love a twenty-four, but a twenty-four to me is really what Paramount was in the seventies. It just isn't called Paramount. But they make Zero Dark Thirty, they make Mother, they, they make these films that I, I like and I think are important that are out there. But to call them independent films is completely disingenuous. Mm. So the fact that that independent world has moved into television, I think is interesting. Um, I still think, though, that if, if they weren't mega large corporations that owned the distribution and content creation channels, because now they're trying to amalgamate those. You know, like you have a distribution channel, so you need a content creation channel. Um, I think there may just be more diversity in what's out there, and uh, less would be up to the artistic taste of the people in there. So, like, I, I, I love that Netflix is, is thinks in an intelligent way. I mean, and, and you know, you can look at something like uh, Lilla Hammer is the perfect example. Like the first independent, the first original series they made was was terrible. But they knew they had to make a terrible series before they could make a good series, and they were brave enough to go for it. Um, I, I don't see Amazon doing that. I just see Amazon just throwing as much spaghetti at the wall as they can until something hits. And frankly, it's not a risk asking Kenneth Lonergan to make a movie of Manchester by the Sea with Casey Affleck. That's, that's no risk at all. Um, no. And, and so I, I kind of wish there was a place where, where there was more of that risk. We talk about that in, in sports a lot. Like, uh, I don't know, I mostly talk about music on this podcast, but I'm a huge sports fan. And, um, you know, being a New England fan, having Bill Belichick be run the, the ship in the, for the Patriots for the last... 17 years there's a lot of consistency but he had a terrible first year and I think that most you see this a lot uh, permeate through multiple different cultures where if an owner doesn't get immediate results from a first year head coach or a first year GM or a first year quarterback they're they're done and a lot of the times it takes a year two years three years before they gel and that was like one of the to me one of the, like the, the benefits of you know, uh, the owner that we have in New England where he held on to this guy who was like this crass first-year coach and then let him do his thing. And obviously he's become Bill Belichick. But um, it's the same thing where like you 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 have to admit that you're going to do terrible at some point in your life. And I think that that makes a better person, whether it's sports team, uh, business decisions, or art. You have to fail at some point 
learn where your failures are and then move on and, and go from there. And if we develop a culture where if you fail once, you're immediately done, then you're not going to really grow as a culture. Um, whether it's something unimportant like sports or whether it's something like government, you know, some of those things have bigger things. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think so much of what happened in film in the 80s were those spectacular failures that I still hold very dear to my heart. I mean, Blade Runner, the original, is one of them. Uh, Sorcerer is another one. Um, one from the Heart by Francis Ford Coppola, which ended a studio and almost ended Francis Ford Coppola as a filmmaker, still has one of the best soundtracks of any movie ever made. And yet, sort of one by one, the 80s films that I hold very dear that were not Star Wars or E.T. or things like that. There were some very beautiful films made in the 80s. They just slowly cut out any studio's appetite for for failure. And so by the time you got to the 90s, you know, all of those really interesting films had been sidetracked in terms of, you know, cloning. You know, if someone made a film that was a successful karate film, we cloned it and made 40 other karate films until karate films weren't popular anymore and we moved to ninja films. You know what I mean? And uh, and I think that what that did is it, it, it brought a kind of a, an overarching larger business model over content creation and distribution that I think we're uh, we're kind of in a headlock in right now. So that's what I would change. It's, it's oh, too sorry. bad. I think so... For the listeners maybe that are a little bit newer, uh, both me and Bryland, or Bryland and I, if we're speaking, you know, good English, uh, Bryland and I Proper. both picked the same movie as our favorite movie from last year, um, and it was a movie that, at least through the studio, re- or the uh, the theater release, made only a one-to-one ratio, and it was Kubo and the Two Strings, and that was, like, one of the most brilliant films I think I've seen in the last couple of years. I still love that film. I, I go back and watch it every couple weeks, just like, yeah. I need at least a little clip of it just to get me back into that. And and that's something that, luckily, those guys had enough money to make a couple films, but who the hell knows how long that Leica Studios is going to last, unless they get some sort of big financial backing, because they just don't make crazy money like a Marvel film or a Star Wars film makes. As much as I absolutely fanboy over both of those franchises, you know, I, I, I guess... If they make stories worth telling, that we need to make sure that happens. Well, not even... Yeah. It, it's also stories worth telling. To be fair, like, Kubo is nothing too crazy storytelling-wise, but it is remarkable to look at. It's stories told. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful, exactly, beautiful film. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So, um, but yeah, that's that's very interesting where, like... It's too bad that we've gotten so money obsessed that you can't let anything permeate as like a cult classic. Like, do you think? Uh-huh. Do you think that? Is, I guess this is a, an add-on to that. Do you think you will see any cult classics in ten years? I've seen a good amount of these movies, and do you think that there's any movie that comes out now because they seem like they're all clones that in ten years you're gonna watch back and be like, dude, I'm gonna watch this every Halloween. Because you know what? Jason X is hilarious. It was so you know, terribly made. I think there will be. And I think it's going to feel a lot like the way that um, uh, punk tapes or cassette tapes were circulated in the 80s. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I remember um, the Bare Naked Ladies 
selling their tape, their cassette tape, out of their yellow van in Vancouver in 1991. You know, and no one had any clue that this band was going to become anything. I remember getting um, a cassette tape of Garage Incorporated, where the, where the um, label had been handwritten by a member of Metallica. So I think that's what our cult classics are going to look like in film. They're going to be things like, oh my God, did you see this thing that was made on whatever the distribution channel was? You know, there's going to be a show from C. And I, it is going to be. Did you ever see the episode from this show on Cecil? Did you see this episode from HBO Go? Did you see this episode of you know Twin Peaks: The Return on Showtime? It, that's the new cassette world that becomes this sort of pick and choose um, sort of pin board that we're going to pin, you know, what we think are really important to us. It's not all going to be, did you see this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie, this show, this show, this show, this show. They're all going to come from a multiplicity of different really weird places and hard to find because they're all going to be shown on different disparate distribution channels. Yeah, I even find myself like, saving videos I find on subreddits because I don't know if I'll ever find it again. I'd like to watch it multiple times, which I think is just talking about exactly where you're um, mentioning is that it's going to be multiple distribution channels hitting us all at once. And we It's up to us to curate it as fans of the yeah, art form as well. But uh, Matt, thank you for joining us tonight. Yeah, One absolutely. last quick question I have for you is what is your favorite Arizona iced tea flavor? I've never had an Arizona iced tea in my life. Cut this. It's We're not, not distributing this. This is not making the podcast. Come on now. <laughs> Dude, I'm buying you um, an Arizona. They are literally a dollar. I'm tomorrow. <laughs> they are literally just a dollar. <laughs> All right. But Matt, thank you for joining us. Where can our uh, fans find more of your work? Besides uh, you can FX. look at it at uh, Maddie Gray, M-A-T-T-I-G-R-A-Y. Uh, dot com. I'm also uh, slash Maddie Gray on Twitter, so you can find me there. Cool. All right, cool. Any um, shows that you'd like to plug or anything like that? Um, everyone should watch Twin Peaks The Return. Everyone should watch Legion Season 1. Everyone should watch Fargo Season 1, 2, and 3, because they're all exceptional and very different. And, uh, and everyone should go see Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. And Mike, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, you can find uh, me at Mayanus Music or Mayanus Band. Uh, I think we switch them up depending on what social media they are. Uh, we're playing a show uh, end of this month, so if you're in the Boston area and you're looking for a mediocre time, please check us out. All right, awesome. And I am the mouth of South Bryland. You can find me on Twitter at Bryland, B-R-I-L-U-N-D. Uh, and I am also the host of the Gamescast, which you can find at twitch.tv slash Podcast. Uh, we have been the Downfront Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at underscore DIFP. We have an email at podcast at gmail.com. Definitely send us any feedback or questions you have about any of the work that we do. Uh, also, we have a Patreon. So if you're willing to, if you want to donate and help support what we're doing, help us build content out. We appreciate it. Even a dollar goes a long way. Uh, Patreon.com slash Podcast. With that, Thank you for joining us tonight, Matt. Uh, best of luck with you and your work. Thank you for giving us a little insight in what you do and how you can help build out these stories going forward. With that, we're out. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. <laughs>